you have a Bible with you, please open it to the end of Exodus 13. And soon we will be reading in verse 17 of that chapter. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can find one in the pocket of the pew in front of you, and you can find Exodus 13, the end of that chapter, on page 52 of that Bible. I would assume that Every single person in here at some point in time, if they've lived any amount of time at all, would have asked the question of why they were made. What is the purpose that you are to serve here on this earth? This is not an unusual question. It's not a specifically Christian question. I think it's a pretty human question. It has caused endless stargazing and philosophical inquiry. Typically, when we ask such a question, we're asking about ourselves alone? Why am I here? What is my purpose in life? And Christianity and almost every other religion offers a more general answer to that question. What is the purpose of life? Typically, the answer to this question comes in things that we have called catechisms. And the question is posed and answers are given to help form the Christian life and Christian practice and Christian doctrine amongst the people of God. We have good catechisms, and two important to us this morning. There is the Westminster Catechism, which is Presbyterian in its orientation, and then there is a Baptist Catechism based off of that, written in about 1695, called the London Baptist Catechism. And they both ask the question, what is the chief end of man? Chief meaning the highest, the greatest, or the most prominent. It implies that there could be others, or there could be other ends of men. There could be other purposes for men, but what is the highest, the most important? And even that word end means the goal or the purpose. We could re-ask the question, what is the primary purpose of mankind? Why did God make us? And both of those confessions give this beautiful two-pronged answer, to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Some want to highlight only the second part of that, only the enjoyment part of that, And it makes God subservient to our own happiness and our own blessedness. It means that the glory of God is not primary but secondary to the fact that we enjoy whatever it is that we experience. Others, seeking to avoid that at all costs, simply latch on to the first. This can easily make God into a despot who doesn't care about our well-being but only cares about his glory. Neither of these is right alone. But kept together, they keep a number of our sinful dispositions from veering off course. So, just as we say when we often pray in here, as I often pray, we end those prayers often with, for our good and for your glory. It is meant to mirror those two things, for the glory of God, to enjoy him forever. But when we say that, we do not mean for our ease or for our painlessness for our good. Israel will indeed find out that sometimes what is good for them and what is right in God's glory sometimes very, very difficult, even as they experience the most triumphant of departures. Let us read then of God's glory here in Exodus chapter 13. If you would begin reading with me in verse 17. When Pharaoh let the people go. God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, 
lest the people change their mind when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt, equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Haharoth, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal-Zaphon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people, and they said, What is this that we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them encamped by the sea at Pi-Haharoth in front of Baal-Zaphon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone, that we may serve the Egyptians for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff. Stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who was going before the hosts of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. 
And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on the right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared, and the Egyptians fled into and as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. Of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant, Moses. This is the word of our God. First, let us talk about the defense of God's glory. And I don't mean defending God's glory, but the fact that God's glory defends his people, the defense of God's glory. We see this in a couple of different ways here at the beginning, or excuse me, at the end of chapter 13. First, there's sort of an invisible way that God protects his people. God understands as they are coming out as slaves that these men and women are not ready for the upheaval of war. It's interesting that our translation says that they went out of Egypt equipped for battle. I'm not sure if that's the best translation of it. Many people struggle with whatever it is that this means, whether they're just in order, in battle array, but certainly the the women and the children are with them here. And even if they go out equipped for battle, regardless of what they're equipped with, God knows they are not ready for war. And so instead of taking them along the most direct route to the Philistine encampments and then to the land of Canaan that they are going to inherit, God leads them south. Going north along the Mediterranean would mean immediately coming into contact not only with Egyptian forts and Egyptian cities, but it would mean coming into contact very soon with the Philistines, and God knew that his people were not ready for it. So, in kindness, God directs them elsewhere. God leads us like this even today. Sometimes God's kindness and his mercy is not readily apparent and obvious. Sometimes it is quite invisible. It can't be understood in what is seen. There are many times when you are delayed to leave. Perhaps it is God's doing. There are decisions that are rejected for no good reason, and perhaps that is God's doing. God will often sway the course of the world to keep our foolishness, and sometimes just to keep our unreadiness, From derailing ourselves. His glory is seen in his kind and merciful defense of his people. Part of the invisible hand of God's protection is even upholding his own word. Joseph knew what was going to happen to the people. He knew that they would be enslaved. He knew the promises of God that one day God would come and visit you. And so he told the people of Israel, these bones of mine are to be kept because you will certainly leave this land. And when you go back to the promised land, you are to take my bones with you. 
So Moses carries them up. If God's people are those who hear the word of God and believe the word of God, if God always stays true to his word, then God's faithfulness is a defense of their trust in him. Joseph is here vindicated because that is indeed what's going on. They are going to head up to the promised land. God has defended his people by showing his glory. But it's not just an invisible defense. There's quite obviously a visible defense as well. Pillars of smoke and fire go before them to lead them through the land. Many see these awesome signs and and wonders of God and they think, why can't we have something a little bit more readily apparent in our lives? I don't get, you know, fire to lead me in the night to know where I'm supposed to go. Same kind of attitude comes up when we hear of the miracles of Jesus and we they say, it would be so helpful to my faith if I could talk directly to Jesus, if I could converse with him, if I could see miracles of him. But we are reminded not only here in the book of Exodus, but we are reminded in the miracles of Jesus that just because people see these things doesn't mean that it helps them in their faith. Obviously, even here, the people seeing this pillar of fire and this pillar of smoke, when they hear the Egyptians and they see them on the horizon, do not say, well, it doesn't matter. We've got these big pillars. We'll be okay. They don't, they don't wrap themselves up in the truth that God is going to protect them because they've got this visual demonstration of it. No, they, they quite naturally freak out. Why give this to them then? Quite honestly, it is to lead them, but it is also there for their protection. The edge of the Red Sea The cloud switches from in front of the people of God to behind them to keep the Egyptians from coming near. I believe it is given for our own benefit so that we could see and know that there was a manifestation of God that protected his people so that we would believe in it even when it's not manifested to us. You train a dog, it's a pretty easy thing to do as long as you're patient carry some treats around with you, find out what your puppy likes, and take him out and sit him down. Show him how to sit, give him a treat. Tell him to sit, show him how to sit, give him a treat. You do it time, and you do it time again. And pretty soon, you can tell him to sit without giving him a treat, and what will he do? He'll sit. And you give him love, and you give him affection. You do it again, you give him love and affection, and pretty soon, that dog will sit for you when you command it to because it likes to obey you It might even not know why it likes to obey you, but it likes to obey you. What God is doing is giving us this to train us, to show us that I do indeed protect my people. I am indeed there. And even when it doesn't appear as though I'm there, we are now trained to respond to the dangers that are around us by thinking our God still protects us. We'll come back to Psalm 18 in in just a minute. Psalm 18 that we read in our responsive reading, we're in the middle of reading as a responsive reading this morning. But towards the middle portion of Psalm 18 that we'll come up to, I think, next week, we read David saying this, For it is you who light my lamp. The Lord my God lightens my darkness. And given some of the other things we read in Psalm 18, it's quite clear that David pictures his entire experience here as an Exodus event. So for David to say, you lighten my path, he means to say, like, that pillar of fire might not be visibly, physically in front of me, 
But God is there all the same. After all, isn't this part of God's glory? That his people would know that he is their God, that he is for them, that he helps them, that he is merciful to them, and also that all who stand against them might know the same in judgment and in wrath and in anger. God's defense of his people is indeed his glory. Secondly, let's talk about the declaration of God's glory. The reason why confessions and catechisms make much of the glory of God is because God in Scripture makes much of his glory. It is an important part of the very thing that he has come here to do. If you look at Exodus, we've talked about how many different like, little themes run through Exodus, but one of them is the absolute ignorance of people at the beginning of the book of Exodus as to who this God is. Moses quite clearly doesn't know who this God is. He, he goes to the burning bush and he hears it talk, and he might have echoes of stories that he heard from when he was a child, but he doesn't know much about this God. You can see this in the hymning and the hawing of, of his calling. As God tells him to go, he says, well, maybe there's a better guy to go. It's clear that the people of Israel do not know the Lord. They too might have stories and might hear certain things, but they don't really know who God is. Quite obviously, Pharaoh doesn't know who the Lord is. This is part of the whole task of Exodus. The whole task of the miracles that God is going to perform through the man Moses is to let both Egypt and Israel know who the Lord is. We get this all the way back in chapter 6 when God says to Moses to speak to Israel, I am the Lord. Who is the Lord? He goes on to say, And I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. You will know the Lord when he comes to save you. And even, even to Pharaoh, who at the very beginning, when Moses goes before him and says, the Lord says, let my people go, Pharaoh's response is, I don't know who the Lord is. The Lord warns him in chapter 9, for this purpose I've raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. God is working out these miracles to show Egypt, to show Israel, to show the entirety of the world his power, which is nothing less than his glory. And given those sort of two twin pillars we talked about the catechism speaking of, to glorify God and enjoy him forever, we might think that we've hit the pinnacle of it in, in Exodus. After all, hasn't God done the very thing that he claimed to do? He has shown Pharaoh his power. This is the whole reason why Pharaoh thrust the people out of the land. Because of all of his supposed divinity and all the help of his gods and all of his magicians, that night when he heard of his son's death, he knew, I have nothing that can match the glory of this God. The people knew it. They said, if you don't leave, we will die. And so they thrust him out. And the Israelites saw his glory. And they knew that their victory was indeed theirs. It's hard to not believe that they enjoyed this. They got gifts. They were granted their salvation, their oppression, and their slavery were over. They might not know where they were going, but they knew at the end of that trail there was a land flowing with milk and honey. 
It seems like it's the pinnacle. God is glorified. The people certainly are enjoying the fruit of God's glorification. But it seems as though this is not the pinnacle. There was yet one more miracle to wrought, one more set of glory to get, more praise to be given to God. God, again, promises to get glory at the expense of Pharaoh, for Pharaoh's own reticent heart is going to pursue the very people in the desert. He seemed to understand at one time. This God is not a God to trifle with, yet he hears of the people wandering in the desert and he thinks, these are easy pickings. You can almost hear his hands slap his forehead as he says, what is this we've done? We've let them go. He forgot about God's glory. So God will again remind him. The point that runs through Exodus is simply this. To know God is to know a God of glory. To say that you have, you have met God, that you understand him, that you know him, that you have experienced his presence You've tasted of his his kindness and his gentleness and his mercy. To know something of what it means to have his wrath and his anger pass over you and not inflict you. And to yet refuse to treat him as glorious, as beautiful, as sufficient in all things. Perhaps you have not met God as fully as you should. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That is what it means to be saved. What it means to be saved, what it means to believe in Jesus, is to believe that you see the very glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. God's glory shines in his Son even as it shines here in Exodus, for all to see. God's purpose in Egypt was to make himself known, which is nothing less than showing his glory. That is our express purpose as well, to make known the glory of God and Jesus Christ through the work of the cross. Just as God has declared his glory through his works in Egypt, so we declare the glory of God through the work of Jesus Christ. But, There is a third part as well, which is the danger of God's glory. The danger of God's glory. And all this we might think to God's glory is something like a big warm hug. It's comfortable, it's safe and inviting, but it seems to be anything but that. Friends, you ought not to think that because God has told you that he will protect you, that that means that you will not face any danger The very fact that God has said that he will protect you implies strongly that there will always be danger. God's glory invites danger. When you read scripture, sometimes I talk about reading scripture in two different ways. Talk about reading it slowly and deeply and then reading vast vast swaths of it at one time. You should also read in two different ways. You should read the words of God especially if you've read it a lot before, as though you've read it a million times. You should read it looking for all the connections beforehand and afterward that that narratives like this provide. But you should also read it like you've never read it before so that you don't miss any of these small little details. And there's a weird little detail here at the beginning of chapter 14. 
The Lord says to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Hiharoth, between Migdal and the sea. You know, God, uh, sometimes God just doesn't understand. So you're escaping, right? If you escape, you don't turn around. Like that's the whole purpose of escape. Escape means get away. And now we've gotten away. And then you said, no, stop. And he doesn't just say stop, but he literally says stop and turn them back. And then he turns them back into this sort of wedge so that on one side of them, they've got a mountain range. On the other side of them, they've got the sea. And the only other side that they've got in this little triangle of theirs is filled with the sound and the look of chariots coming after them. This, this, is, this is not quite how you make an escape. Why? Why would, you, why would you corner us like this? Why wouldn't you let us flee? God, in verse 3, for Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land, the wilderness has shut them in. He's saying, I've made you fish in a barrel so that, well, so that Pharaoh will come and hunt you. Empathy, as we said last week, it's a really hard thing to have at time. Everyone in here knows of fear. No one in here has been excused from that emotion. If you are, you're a psychopath, and we should talk. But most of you, I'm guessing, have experienced fear of some sort in your life, whether it was a justified fear or an unjustified fear. You, you almost got hit by that truck on the highway and, and it sends fear through you. Or when you're a kid, you've got to run through a dark room and you don't know what's under the couch or you don't know what's trailing behind you and you have this visceral fear. You all have felt fear at some point in time. It's hard to imagine that we have felt fear quite like this. It'd be difficult to imagine what it would be like for an Israelite to have left with women and children in tow and all your possessions. You're moving slow. People in the back start shouting because they're the ones who are going to hear it first. They're the ones who are going to see it first. And it makes its waves up that Egypt is coming. Egypt is coming. We hear chariots, which to them would have sounded nothing different than tanks. To think that you're minutes away from watching your family butchered in front of you because they're going to kill all of you. To think that you were at the, the height the absolute height of victory, only to be brought as low as you could in the bitterness of defeat. This is why the people cry out like they do. It's a strong cry. And one of the weird things about that particular cry right there is that God does not take them to the woodshed. Later on, they're going to grumble and complain like this to Moses. And Moses and God will lay them out for it. But here, God seems to understand how frightened the people are. They don't know him like they need to know him. And soon that excuse is going to go away. But here, I think God is just incredibly merciful. Don't yell out to me. Don't cry out to me. I've got this under control. The point is simply this. The fact that God's glory protects his people doesn't mean for a second that you get to escape danger. David, after all, some of the most famous words of Scripture, says, as I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, 
He's there because death surrounds him. He's there because death presses in on him. Scripture is full of this danger, almost especially in people who strove the most for the glory of God. Moses was always one word away from mutiny. Samuel's going to have to face an angry nation and a desperate king. David is going to be chased, hunted, nearly speared. Elijah is on the run from an evil queen. John the Baptist is beheaded at the request of a young girl. Paul whipped in stone. Peter is thought to be crucified. James stoned and thrown down from the temple. John exiled to Patmos. Jesus himself betrayed, blasphemed, and crucified. All these men strove for the glory of God. And all of them didn't just face danger. They had danger thrust upon them. But the juxtaposition between the people here and Moses is incredibly stark. People freak out. People quite certain that they are all going to die. Something in Moses has changed. This is not the Moses of chapter 4. We said, maybe you should send somebody else. I'm not quite gifted, God. This is not the Moses of, of chapter 6. When he looks at Pharaoh and he says, I don't know why Pharaoh is going to listen to me if the people of Israel are not going to listen to me. Something in watching the miracles of God as he's worked as this ambassador between Pharaoh and God, praying to God for Pharaoh, speaking to Pharaoh for God, something in all of that has changed him. And now he sees nothing but an opportunity for God to show his power and his might. Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord. Friends, the pursuit of God's glory will lead you into the path of danger. Danger of losing your job, danger from the evil one, danger in your health, danger in your finances. As the water stands here, you have dangers to the left and dangers to the right. And why? Why would God put us in those situations? What good is there in this? Last week in Sunday school, we talked about Charles Spurgeon. For all of his fame, probably one of the most famous men in England at the time, for all the the good that he was able to do, he was a man racked with depression. Constantly in his adult life, once he was over about the age of, of 25 to 30, it was a constant companion for him, deep and abiding depression. He wrote about this to his students because he didn't want to hide it from them. He didn't feel like there was any good in that. He knew that they were going to face the same kind of thing, maybe not on his level, but it was a likelihood, and so he wrote about it. In one of his lectures, he said this, This depression comes over me whenever the Lord is preparing a larger blessing for my ministry. The cloud is black before it breaks and overshadows before it yields its deluge of mercy. Depression has now become to me as a prophet in rough clothing, a John the Baptist, heralding the nearer coming of my Lord's richer benison. So have far better men found it. The scouring of the vessel has fitted it for the master's use. Immersion in suffering has preceded the 
baptism of the Holy Ghost. Fasting gives an appetite for the banquet. If you truly in your life want to seek the glory of God, you will find danger. Or better put, maybe, danger will find you. But in that danger, your job is to await the blessings of deliverance, which does actually bring us to our fourth point, which is the deliverance of God's glory. Not delivering God's glory, but the glory of God delivering us. We want to avoid both extremes. We can't downplay the danger lest we lose faith when we ourselves are actually surrounded, but we cannot overplay the danger and lead one another into despair. But the danger is likely greater than we think. Moses is led just like his mother led him, and now he is led by God to the very brink of water that promises to destroy him. The story has been told. Certainly it is known by almost all in here. God tells Moses to lift up his staff. He says the water will separate. A great east wind comes and it begins to separate that water. Water that would certainly have killed them had they entered into it on their own. It begins to separate. God rotates from in front of them to behind them to allow them passage into the land without Egypt being able to follow. At some point in time, the cloud lifts and Egypt is able to follow them into this sea that is now divided to their right and to their left. But God slows up the chariots, which certainly would have caught them in time. He clogs their wheels or does something to them to allow them to not run as fast as they normally would. They then freak out and they try and leave. By this time, Israel has made it to the far shore. God looks down in judgment upon the Egyptians. Tells Moses, extend the staff yet again. The water rushes back over the Egyptians And every single one of them dies. God delivers his people. It's it's a good story. The good guys win. The bad guys lose. It's a nice little bow on top of everything else. It's exactly how we would expect it to end. There is a little bit more to this story than that because the importance of this story isn't just found here. It's not just found in the fact that God, one time, delivered his people through the sea and killed all their enemies there. It is not just some sort of history lesson or a way for us to see this power of God in this particular demonstration, but rather it seems like the rest of Scripture, in a number of ways, treats it like it is the paradigm for how we are to see all of the deliverances of God. We talk about the fact that this is a picture of our redemption, I think it is the picture of our redemption. Psalm 18, which we talked about previously, has a a prescript to it. Not all psalms have prescripts. Some of them do, some of them don't. They tell sometimes of who wrote the psalm. Sometimes they give musical notes. You're supposed to play it with this instrument or play it to this tune. Rarely, but every so often, we're given this sort of historical background to what this psalm is. Psalm 18 has one of those. The prescript for Psalm 18 says this, to the choir master, a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, who addressed the words of the song to the Lord on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. You can't read that prescript 
and think, oh, that must be about the Exodus, right? Because that is quite clearly not about the Exodus. It's about David running from Saul and being delivered from that. We don't know exactly what part of David's life it is, but we know that it is about a part of David's life. And yet as we read through the psalm, we get a sense that David isn't quite as sure as we are that this isn't actually about the Exodus. In verses 4 to 6, verses that we will come back to, David says this, The cords of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress I called upon the Lord. To my God I cried for help. From his temple he heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears. And just last week, we read these words. The Lord also thundered in the heavens, and the Most High uttered his voice, hailstones and coals of fire. And he sent out his arrows and scattered them. He flashed forth lightnings and routed them. Then the channels of the sea were seen, and the foundations of the world were laid bare. At your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils. David, for some reason, seems to think that in God's deliverance of him from the hand of his enemies, and specifically the hand of Saul, that the Exodus is like repeating all over again. You can look in vain for hailstones and fiery storms to be the thing that delivered David, but this is exactly what he says here. He is directly alluding to the Exodus. And given the fact that he has said that he has gone down to Sheol, when it says the channels of the sea were seen and the foundations of the world were laid bare, we get a hint at the, the depth of what God has shown us in the Exodus. You see, the Israelites didn't assume the world was a big sphere, but they had like a tiered way of looking at the world. And so you had heaven above, and then sky, and then land, and then water, and then below the water were the foundations of the world. Below the water is also where Sheol was, is the place of the dead. David quite clearly talks about being in the place of the dead, that the cords of Sheol surrounded them, that he was in distress. When he says here that the channels of the sea were seen and the foundations of the world were laid bare, what he means is that's exactly where Israel went. When God opened the sea, Israel would have thought of themselves as descending into the very place of the dead, to the very foundations of the world. David says, figuratively, that's exactly what happened to me. I was as good as dead, and you delivered me. This is exactly like what happens in the Exodus. It's interesting the New Testament is emphatic on this weird point that's somewhat hard to grasp. Continually, we're told, you have eternal life. You have eternal life. You have eternal life. And yet every single author of the New Testament Every single believer that they wrote to were either incredibly obtuse or that that statement means something that just doesn't make sense at first blush because every single one of them died. And all of their hearers died. And everyone in here will die. Every single one of us. Lest the Lord return, 
You will not live forever. You will die. And yet, that is the resounding statement of the New Testament, that you have eternal life. It doesn't mean that you're going to hear the sound of chariot wheels. It might just be the rattling of your own chest, but death is coming for you. Why promise us eternal life? Simply, that God would be glorified. Death is always the worst of all of our enemies. It is the final and the last weapon of Satan, and it is the final and last weapon that anyone on this earth can ever take out against you. Death is the worst that they can do. Jesus said it somewhat differently, but you you understand what he's getting at when he says, don't fear those who kill the body but are not able to kill the soul. Rather, fear him who is able to destroy both the soul and the body in hell. Now, he, he is pointing you to not fear in them, but he is saying that they've got nothing more than death. That's all they've got. But man, that's quite a weapon. It's quite a weapon. The point really is this, that God will one day lead you out of Sheol just as he did the Israelites and just as he did figuratively David and just as he did in reality Jesus for our king has gone before us. He dies like you and like me. Might have been a more excruciating death but we all die. Jesus was no different. He died. But he was different. And that when he went to the place of the dead, he was not just as you or I was. Death had no hold on him. So he bound the strong man, he plundered his goods, and he stole his keys. In Matthew 16, Jesus talks about Peter and the good confession. And he says, the gates of hell, Hades, place of the dead, will not stand against the church. The way in which people typically take that is that the church is somehow going to like kick down the gates and go raiding into Hades to get the dead out. And it's actually been used as sort of a metaphor for bringing out spiritually dead people. I don't think it has anything to do with that. What Jesus is describing is not an invasion of hell, but an explosion out of hell. Hell, too strong. Hades, translations mess me up. I blame King James. It's not, an explosion, it's not an invasion into Hades, into the place of the dead, but an explosion out of it. Those gates, like the waters in Egypt, will separate. And you and I and all of the dead who are in Christ will walk out, not as slaves, not bound by sin, not bound to death, but free. This is one of the reasons why Paul 
calls this their baptism. He says they were baptized here in 1 Corinthians. We baptize not simply to show the spiritual side of our union with Christ, which we do, right? So you were, you were put into the water, and we talk about how you're unified with Christ, like him in his death, raised to walk in the newness of life, right? You're unified with him. It's a picture of your spiritual death and your spiritual life, but we're not just representing spiritual realities. Rather, we're prophesying. You will die. And one day, you will go below the waters all the way to the place of death. And yet, you will one day physically rise up from there. God's glory is to be over all that threatens his people so that he might show his power and his might over all of their enemies. That includes death. So friends, you will face the danger of death and you will do it for God's glory. And you will rise again, being delivered for God's glory. So what would you do until then? Do exactly what Moses says. Fear not. Stand firm. And see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you. The Lord will fight for you. And you have only to be silent. Let us pray. Our God, give us strength of faith for the day when the danger of death presses upon us. Let us face that with the full assurance of Moses here, having seen your deliverance of your people, assured to us in the raising of Jesus Christ from the dead that you will bring us out from our miserable state into the glory of your light. May your people ever praise you. May they stand before you always, singing of your great deliverance. And as we ask these things, we do it always. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, for our good, and for your glory. Amen.